Hey, good morning. Welcome to uh, Hill Country Bible Church. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. We are thrilled that you've joined us today. We are moving through the Sermon on the Mount. What an incredible passage. Uh, I'm particularly proud if you're uh, physically with us in, per- in person in church today because the great state of Texas had a rough day yesterday, y'all, and I know that, and I feel the weight of it. There's no joy in Mudville, and that's a reference from the 1800s for those of you who get that. Um, very glad that you're with us, though. I'm very glad that we're right smack dab in the middle of a sermon where Jesus stepped into a culture that was broken, trying to get itself back on track. But there were so many different factions and options of this group or that group or like, trust us, go this way or no, trust us, go that way. And man, Jesus speaks right to all of it and then floats above it and asks that culture to choose kingdom over preference, character over verbiage, and eventually to fight for our hearts to have affection for all of them. And today is no different. It's almost like Jesus is speaking to 21st century American culture. I'm telling you, it's crazy how prescient God's word always is. So what we're going to do is I'm just stuck on this. I know, I know it's too many words for a screen. I know that. But it's crazy to me how pertinent all of these passages that were written in the first century Roman-occupied Israel almost could have been written to the church in America and then basically said the exact same thing. So if you don't mind, we're going to work our way through the passage today and then finding ourselves wrestling with it a little bit through identity politics, a little bit through the Spartans. Let's just do it. Let's not talk about it. Let's be about it. Verse 33, Jesus says, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old... You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, God save, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. I don't care what kind of polish you buy. Let what you say be simply yes or no, Anything more than this comes from evil. Really interesting right on the surface. Again, if you've grown up in church, it sounds churchy, it sounds bible it sounds comforting. There's actually some really interesting challenges happening here. We'll slow it down so that we can pull them out. And as we do, I want to bring this up right off the bat. Um, the, the challenge here in 34 and then in 36 is do not take an oath. Some of your English translations might say, do not swear. Some of them say, don't take an oath. Um, Interesting, right? Because do not swear in modern American culture is like curse words, right? And like, not saying any of y'all, but there were definitely some curse words used yesterday in the great state of Texas. And so some English translators chose to not use that word to bring this into context. They chose this word. Do not take an oath. This one is also a little bit challenging because we don't really say like, do you take an oath on it, bro? Like we just don't use that phrase in common culture. Um, And so... And so it's a little bit, it can feel a little bit distant. Like whatever Jesus is teaching in this passage doesn't need to land in our culture because the language choice that we've got isn't great for what's pushing on us. But if you take a look at what's really happening, Jesus is saying, don't take an oath by heaven, by the earth, by Jerusalem, or by your head. And the reason he's saying that is kind of like, we've got like a kind of a silly throwaway phrase in English culture. Um, We would say like, 
on my mama's grave and then we'll say something, right? And really what you're saying is like the most like important thing I could ever think of in my entire life, like the place where my mom lays to rest eternally, that's how seriously I'm taking what I'm about to say is. But it's kind of a cover-up too. It's kind of a throwaway. And God is saying in the passage, hey, when you promise to heaven, I promise to the earth, I promise to Jerusalem, you are now associating your word with God's authority. Back off of that. Because he explains each of these things, heaven, earth, Jerusalem, your head, he associates them with him, not with you. Heaven is the throne of God. Earth is the footstool of God. Jerusalem is the city of God. And so the reference point, if you're associating yourself with any of these things, you're really trying to attach your lack of credibility with God's great credibility. You're trying to cover up a life that probably can't just say what it just said. So you're trying to compensate and you're trying to put, you just chose to make God a cosigner on a loan that you're aware you can't make payments on. And God's saying, don't put me on that loan. If you're able to follow through on what you said, you don't need to add me to it. Just be about it. Don't talk about it. Um, interestingly enough, students, there, there is um, always a generational gap in the language we use to explain things, right? And I know I turned 100 years old when I started hearing words that I literally, for the first time, I'm like, I actually have no idea what that means. I am lost. So I want to walk you through a linguistic sequence that our students use right now that is ironically this exact tension, okay? I'm a student. Um, how are you youths doing? And, uh, and I'm moving through life and I say something that is like potentially braggadocious or like potentially um, <laughs> incredible. And someone will say back to me, if they don't agree with me, if they think I'm lying, they'll call cap. Okay, I capitulate. I don't know what it's slang for. I really don't. Okay, but I do know that if I call cap on something like, no, that's wrong. Am I getting this right? I'm getting it right so far. All right. So now if I've been challenged, if my integrity and honor has been challenged as a sophomore, then I will say back to you, no cap as if a double negative, I guess. I don't exactly know. But now it's like, no, the veracity of my statement stands on its own. I reverse uno card your cap call and I say, no cap. Okay, so then if you've now doubled up on me, boy, I don't even understand what I'm about to say, that indeed there is no cap, then I will then gently acquiesce and I'll say, on God. And then they will affirm back to end the conversation on God. Okay. <laughs> right? Like, I've said something that's not credible. You've challenged me on it. And instead of just being a person of credibility and just saying things that are plainly true, which Jesus will appeal to, I've decided to go back in this tete-a-tete, -tete, this war of words. Oh, tete-a-tete -tete and cap and no cap. I am mixing my phrases. Where are we right now? Let me say it this way. When we dilute the truth, then sprinkle God on top of our uncredible life, we rob God of his truth. Ooh. And when we rob God of his truth, we make him untrustworthy. Like, 
Like, if you're going to go sign a bad loan and you know that your credit won't get it, but mine will, I don't want you throwing my name on that loan. Don't, don't sign up for that loan. Don't drag me down. First century Judaism apparently was struggling with something of mixing God's authority with their lack of credibility. In the first century, the Jewish people struggled with just saying something that was plainly true. They felt a need to build up their case. And apparently they used God as this great compensation. Let's say it this way. When they didn't have the credibility to believe, be believed, they pulled God's credit report and signed him on their contracts. And Jesus says, stop. D.A. Carson is an academic um, who writes uh, study material for those of us in ministry to get deeper into the truth of God's word. And he writes this about what was happening in the first century Israel. For one example, a rabbi could say that if you swear by Jerusalem, you're not bound by your vow. But if you swore toward Jerusalem, then you're bound by your vow. The swearing of oaths thus degenerates into terrible rules, which let you know when you can get away with something and when you can't. These oaths no longer foster truthfulness, but weaken the cause of truth, and they promote deceit. If men will play such games with oaths, Jesus will simply abolish oaths. He's interested in truthfulness. Well, thank goodness we don't live in a day and age that doesn't value the truth and doesn't degenerate into half-references and preferential opinions. And when we say, I read somewhere, we kind of mean I saw a meme. No, man, our culture struggles with this exactly, right? We'll talk about like how it lives a little bit in Christian culture, but where it lives in larger culture. And where it lives in larger culture is a threat to us, but it's also our opportunity to be a gospel culture. And so as we move through this morning, we're going to try and pull this truth out and have it land places. Let me just touch quickly on two Christian concepts where this might live in 21st century America, okay? Um, let's just say that you are... you. Here's something that's true about our church. We've grown by six, 700 people in the last two months, which means we've got more kids in kids' ministry, which means we have more opportunity for adults in this church to invest in a generation that is ready to be molded for the gospel. But when you get asked about it, they're like, hey, we'd love for you to serve with our fourth graders. You're like, ah, let me pray about it. <laughs> okay, good. I don't have to explain that one. It's okay to say, let me think about it, rather than saying, oh, God told me to not serve. You, know, you don't got to do that. You could just be like, that is not my calling, y'all. Um, other one, a little bit harder to explain. And I want to be careful because there are some sweet people that use this phrase in a way that's full of faith. But there are some people, here's the phrase, God's got me in a season right now. Does he, or are you living in the bad choices you made over the last seven years, right? Like, like, there's a difference between the two. Now, on one hand, people full of faith can use God's got me in a season right now, and there is something, like a depth of conviction in that statement, like Jeremiah and Lamentations, and like, though he slay me, like, I'm standing right here. I don't care how difficult my circumstances are. I believe God is God in, through, and above my circumstances. So God's got me in a season is a way of showing deference. I don't trust my circumstances more than I trust my God. And it can be full of faith. Or 
You could be like, God's got me in a season right now, and like, mm, that's just kind of a throwaway phrase to try and conceal a lack of faithful living with some God language. But for the most part, we actually don't do this exact sequence in Christian culture. We do it in our larger pagan culture, secular culture. Now, secular culture doesn't swear to God a lot. They, like, no one in America has been like, I take an oath to Jerusalem that if you just pass this law, we'll... No, they don't do that because they've torn down God for years and years and years. We are still on a trajectory set in the Renaissance and the Enlightenment where more and more I am God. And so our culture is swears to ourself. But that would sound crazy and it's not just that I, I swear to myself. I associate myself with a larger thing. Well, let me, let me read it right here. We swear to our party, don't we? <laughs> I mean, other people do. We, not us. People swear to their gender. They swear to their ethnicity. They swear to their economic, their economic band. They swear to their generation. And then we blast any possible truth into that system. And we label those people as bigots or fascists or rhinos or etc., etc., etc. We swear to whatever defends us. We swear to whatever defends our preference. So as Jesus wants in this passage, people to just speak truth to culture, it's a little bit tricky right now because there is a swimming, churning sea of which culture has the pulpit at any point. And that feels overwhelming. It feels very discouraging to a people who want to align ourselves with eternal, permanent, like true truth. Because everything shifts around us all the time. Matter of fact, in just a minute, you guys can start getting ready. You can bring out mannequins whenever you guys want. It's not just that Jesus is speaking through the scriptures to our church all the time and then to culture. It's like, well, which culture is Jesus speaking truth to? I don't just have to wrestle with what Jesus calls us to. I have to, yeah, I enjoy the moment. I, the first service got distracted too. It's not just that as I'm in the scriptures preparing any given week on how can I communicate this first century passage to a 21st century American audience. You know who I'm wrestling with all the time? <sighs> I warned you guys a couple weeks ago I was going to do something spicy because I trusted you. Guys, I love this church and I trust you. <sighs> but I'm, I'm going to say it. I wrestle every single week with Rachel Maddow and Tucker Carlson also, don't I? I wrestle with Dave Chappelle and Joe Rogan. Isn't that weird? Comedians who've become social commentators. I wrestle with Jordan Peterson, Barack Obama, Donald Trump. I wrestle with all men and then dissenting men. I wrestle with all women and then dissenting women. Whoo, all ethnicities and the list goes on and on, right? And um, somewhere through the mannequins, if I could throw something up on screen and if you can't see it, I'm sorry. But where truth loses, everyone loses. Where truth loses, everyone loses. And here's the tension. Here's why mannequins are on stage. Over here, we've got the truth of God's word. I know in churches, we don't really do pulpits anymore. We do music stands. So, but the truth of God's word. And we are the people of truth. And then we look out at culture and we're like, I have to live somewhere in this culture. But there's always two options on any given thing. Like you guys can't, we can't pay fast food without like turning it into an agenda. And so we look at this option and we look at that option and we decide, well, they're, they're stone cold crazy. 
whatever the split is. And so we say, all right, I guess this is where I'm going to live over here. And slowly over time, people of truth begin to be more convinced that, oh my gosh, they've lost their mind. Which, spoiler alert, they have. Okay? But slowly we begin to look back over at whoever's communicating the truthfulness of Jesus and say, Jesus, you better speak to them. And then Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to speak truth to all of culture. And we're like, yeah, yeah. You better speak truth to them. And Jesus is like, yeah, I want to speak truth to all of culture. And slowly but surely, we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. You better speak truth to them. And the pressure I feel is threefold. Number one, my loyalty is as a gospel communicator. I communicate the kingdom, Jesus, and truth. Number two, I actually feel the tension because I live in this world with all of you. I feel the pressure when I sign my girls up for school. I feel the pressure when there are different political ideas happening. I feel the pressure when there's ethnic splits. So I feel all of that weight, and I understand that as a believer, you're not immature if you wind up living your life next to these parties. But here's the pull. The third pull I feel is, man, there's some believers in culture right now that are so convinced that what started off as the best option is truth, and they're the only ones who need it. And here's where I'm at. As I stand back over to the truthfulness of God's word, our mission, as I understood it, I left the craziness of California for the great state of Texas, not because of those two things, but because of the clarity of each of us together saturating all of Austin with the love of Jesus. And so the threat in this passage is twofold. One, I threaten God's credibility, which then twofold threatens our ability to do what Jesus has called us to do and just speak truth and not worry about preference. And I'm sorry, this got too spicy. You'll notice I was smart enough to not put any sort of labels on either one of these because I ain't even going there. But ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus is calling us to this, he's calling us to be able to say, whew, Jesus, speak truth to me so that I've got the courage and credibility to start speaking truth to wherever it is that you've got me. Because the beauty of this system is that when I'm embedded in my culture, now if this is where I live, then now I can speak truth to them as well. You see, the beauty of this is that when I'm living with them, Jesus has access to them, right? So this is actually sometimes a threat and a frustration, but this is also an excellent gospel opportunity that whenever I give Jesus the full access to speak truth to my life, now I can start whispering it to whatever group I've chosen to live my life with. Whoo, it's too spicy. Get the mannequins off, please. No more, no more mannequins. No more of the duality of split American culture. Um, the truth is this, is that we're not in great shape as a culture because we struggle to be people who live the truth and we struggle, therefore, to be people who listen to the truth. And those two things, unfortunately, ironically, are really true of where we're at. And so with that tension set in mind, um, Jesus provides the answer right in the passage. He says this, this is the solution. Are you ready? Say yes or no. And that's all he says. <laughs> I mean, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Whew, wait a second. So if I say, oh man, on my mama's grave, that comes from evil? I mean, yeah. When we need a bunch of self-referencing, sound-biting, 
preferential, tribalistic, narrative-driven sources of truth. Let me ask this. Does it feel like our culture just keeps drifting to a place that's more and more evil? Yeah, it does. It's almost like Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about 2,000 years ago. But then the solution feels insufficient. Just being a person that just says the truth so simply Jesus didn't understand the spin machine of 21st century America. Jesus didn't understand the power of media and the airwaves and podcasts and the constant drone of tribalism and narrative. Ah, he did actually. Because what he says here is more powerful than the noise of the airwaves. Because he's saying that truth expressed in a relationship actually changes the world. Let me explain it through the lens of McDonald's. Um, Let me ask everyone at Hill Country Bible Church, um, do you believe, do you think that McDonald's serves healthy food? No, there literally were laughs when I asked the question. I don't think anybody, I don't even think Ronald himself believes that McDonald's serves healthy food. As a matter of fact, ironically, probably there is wholesale belief in the opposite. If we took a poll, very few things could need on America other than this. America understands that McDonald's is not healthy. We all know that. Have y'all checked on McDonald's lately? They're doing just fine, right? Like one of my friends here in the church, one of the elders, um, shot me an article that I'm pretty sure I'm remembering this right. There's a lady who has a 24-year-old Big Mac that is still not rotted. Not a good sign. Now, here's the funny thing. I know that, and I have eaten McDonald's. (laughs) It's almost like the information on its own doesn't really impact my life, which maybe it should. Now, here's the other thing that you don't know about me. My wife has celiac disease, which means if she eats anything that's like cooked with, been near, like driven past um, flour and gluten of any kind, it wrecks her system. It ruins her body's ability to absorb nutrients. Gluten literally destroys my wife's life. And so if I'm going to go eat with my wife, you know what I do? I hop on the website ahead of time and I find out if they're a gluten-free restaurant. And then I read their language because there is a world of difference between gluten-friendly and gluten-free. There just is. Gluten-friendly is trendy. That's fine if that's a choice you want to make. But we need to be gluten-free. And after I read the website, I call. And all of you introverts, oh, you just tensed up, didn't you? Like, why would you call? The website exists so you don't have to call. (laughs) But I hop on the website. And then I hop on the phone. And I talk to the person. Good. Person, hey, I noticed your website says gluten-free. Is that true? Talk with me about cross-contamination. And if they understand that phrase, I feel good enough that I take my wife there. And here's my point. Ideas on their own don't have as much power as ideas and truth in relationship. When my wife is attached, it changes the way I live. And unfortunately for us, part of what the enemy is doing, last week Jim mentioned that in the fight of lust and divorce, our enemy is a tempter. Well, our enemy is also called a deceiver. And one of the great lies that he's pulled us to is that ideas feel strong, but they feel stronger than they really are. Ideas don't change my life. Relationships feel weaker than they are. Relationships change my life. 
One of my favorite things that I was taught as I moved into this role is that Tim Hawk sat me down and he said, Tim, a lot of churches choose an informational approach to how we need to impact the world. Hill Country works hard for an incarnational approach. Jesus stepped into a body and stepped into this world. And in that body, he changed it. And Tim, at Hill Country, we try and move truth from ideas into people and people into relationships because a blessed strategy is not checking off a box on a Christian card. A blessed strategy, incarnation, is us actually changing the world. And I know, I feel the pressure that we've lost the battle already because of how much airwaves gets chunked up with dumb, stupid, bad ideas. I get it. It's, it's just that ideas only feel stronger than they are and relationships feel weaker than they are. A person of character who speaks the truth changes the world. In history, before the Romans, um, there was a group of people uh, called the Spartans. Um, Spartans were kind of cool if you like fighting and war and stuff and if you don't, then you would not enjoy the Spartans at all. Um, matter of fact, Michigan State Michigan State Spartans, when sports in Texas don't go well, we choose the Spartans. Um, Spartans were famous for their ability to win every battle they fought. And as a result, the Spartans, somewhere along the line, decided they were done with this silly war of words. They were going to say as little as possible at all points in time. Let me read you guys a quick little recap of a story from a long time ago. When Philip II of Macedon invaded Greece, having subjugated several Greek city-states already, he sent a warning to Sparta, stating, You are advised to submit without further delay, for if... I bring my army to your land. I will destroy your farm, slay your people, and raise your city. The Spartans sent back a reply. And all they said was, if? Ooh, that's cold. That's tombstone cold. That's top gun cold. That is, tell you what that is. Spartans had established that their lives already did the talking. Their words didn't really need to. They were already people of credibility. And people of credibility don't need to say much. They just need to say what's true. And that, that is like just this, like maybe it's just me and guy world. But I love the fact that when Jesus says, hey, say yes or no, he's appealing to two things. One, he's appealing to the reality that relationship is stronger than we think it is. And number two, he's appealing to the fact that your life has credibility before your words speak. So if the Sermon on the Mount is about Jesus developing more affection for you to him and him to you, then whoo, wait a second, all of these things, my anger, my lust, my, my truthfulness, all of these are ways in which I can demonstrate to Jesus, I trust you in that, or we can choose the opposite. I choose for my anger to protect me, Jesus, and I don't choose you as my protector. I choose for my lust to comfort me because I don't believe you'll comfort me. I choose to be a man or a woman who spin doctors everything because I don't believe your truth is enough to govern my life. Or we look right back at him in each of these callings, each of these challengings, and we tell him something big. We tell him, oh, man, I love my preferences. I love my tribe. I love my narrative. It's so comforting. It helps me believe that the other side is so dumb and I'm so right. 
But Jesus, could you speak truth to me so that my life is credible before I even speak? In a way that is like the Spartans of old, that when I show up at work and they're arguing this and that and I just say the truth, it's different because I'm different. And when I'm different, well, let's say it this way, where truth wins, Jesus wins. Because then Jesus is in those environments. And we advance the gospel. Um, there's a book written by Cormac McCarthy. And Cormac McCarthy wrote a bunch of books um, that happened on the border of Texas, Mexico. So I don't know how much y'all know Cormac McCarthy, but oh baby, his books are rough. One of his famous ones got also made into a movie, No Country for Old Men. And the story of No Country for Old Men is really simple. It is a sheriff in a border town, Texas, in the 1980s. And it was a border town in Texas in the 1980s. It kind of went the way it was supposed to go, right? Before Californians moved in and broke it. And the sheriff one day stumbles across a drug deal gone bad. And now two people across the book struggle with the consequences of this drug deal gone bad. And to be honest with you, the more the sheriff follows this crime, the more it breaks him. And at the end of the book, at the end of the story, the sheriff is so discouraged by how evil the world had become that he's pretty sure he doesn't want to be a sheriff anymore. And he's sitting with his older uncle, and he's just kind of lamenting this. He's, he's processing his grief over the fact that his lifetime of doing good hasn't brought more good into the world. And his older uncle's looking at him, and he's watching him, and he sees the discouragement, and the uncle tells him a story, and he's like, you know what? Further back up our family tree, there was another lawman back in the 1800s. And in the 1800s, he was called to serve a warrant to this house out in the country, and he hops on his horse, and he's riding out to this house. And before he can serve the warrant, he shot off his horse with a bow and an arrow. And he looks at this guy, and he says, listen, the world's always been fully evil, and it always needs a spark of good. And the point of no country for old men is that we live in a day and age where we know the world is evil and it can feel exhausting to need to be good. But Hill Country, you know what's cool? There's going to be 5,000 of us in church this weekend. You know what that means? Jesus just gave us access to 50,000 people in North Austin. Oh, people have been so sweet. They're like, Tim, Man, Hill Country's a big church. You okay? Those are big shoes to fill. I'm like, Psh, I know it. But this is the huddle. I played high school football. You know where I was never nervous? The huddle. <laughs> when we broke and we had to run the play, ooh, man, the other team was always pretty intimidating when it was time to run the play. Y'all, on a weekend, this is the huddle. We get to be together. I love being here. But this week, Jesus is going to give us Probably 50,000 people that we're going to interact with. And I love it. Because truth lived in relationship changes the world. Oh my gosh. Hill Country, I know you're frustrated. I know it's difficult. Get back on your horse, y'all. All the way back to the first century. Apparently we've struggled with this. All the way back to the first century. Jesus has said, the world needs people of truth. And so Hill Country, this is what we get to do today. When we speak the truth, we honor God and remind the world that God is truth. And when we remind the world that God is truth, we make him trustworthy. Amen? Oh my gosh. So in each of these areas of the Sermon on the Mount, 
Let Jesus win territory in your heart and affections because the more you tell him, all right, Lord, speak to me about my truthfulness. Speak to me about my lust. Speak to me about my anger. You become a person of more and more credibility. Like the Spartans of old, when you show up on scene, they know who you are already. And then when you speak, oh, you honor and reflect him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the way that you press on these pieces of culture that somehow capture what's happening all around us and then can capture what needs to happen in us. And Lord, I feel the weight. I feel the constant pressure to be in the world and not of it. To know that you're a God of truth and then to try and figure out where do I align? Where would I send my girls? How would I interact in my neighborhood? And Jesus, you tell us to be people of truth and to not need to align ourselves with narrative or tribe to cover up our incredible lives with the fake God label, but to just be people of truth. So Lord, I pray for us. Lord, I pray that you would make us courageous to choose your truth onto our lives. And then out of that, Lord, would you call us to be people to speak truth into lives. And Lord, we'll thank you for the opportunity. Lord, we love you. We pray that you'd help us to live like it. In your name we pray. Everyone said? Amen. Amen.